Well, 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 we are no longer concrete conservatives. We are now statues and stories. We're all about the stories of the American Revolution. Today, we're going to take a tour here on WSQF 94.5 with Ed Vidal and the, the, the great Adam Levinson and Mr. Roth, a, a, a really impressive painter yeah. who's going to give us a tour of Boston during the Revolutionary period, I guess through a looking glass of a painter. David Wells Roth is a contemporary painter in the realist school, which is, I think, kind of unusual, but it's great because you do very good historical work. So why so, don't you tell us? So welcome, w welcome you two. It's uh, how's the exhibit been going on? I mean, is it uh, are you getting a nice flow of people and uh, the talks are as filled as the first day? Thank you for mentioning the exhibit. So let's start off by summarizing for everybody the exhibit, and then I'm going to give a little bit of a discussion about the history in Boston. And then what David's going to do is he's going to walk us through because he's a native Bostonian. He's lived in Boston. I don't know. We'll ask him how many years he's lived there. Well, I moved there when I was 10 and uh, left for college around uh, when I was 18, 19, 20. No, I was through college. Yeah, 22. And then you did 15 years in Europe. But other than that, you've some time in New York. But other than that, you're a Boston guy. So let's just talk real quickly about the exhibit. So thank you for that question, Manny. So going on right now through the middle of April, we have the Hamilton exhibit at MSU. This is the Nova Southeastern University's Cortilla Gallery. <clears throat> and we have all kinds of historical artifacts that we talked about over the last couple weeks. In fact, last week, if I'm remembering correctly, the time is flying, we did a radio tour of what people can see at that exhibit. And the exhibit centered around David's Revolutionary War artwork from the Union Oyster House, which I'm sure David will tell us about again tonight. This is a restaurant in Boston, the oldest restaurant in the country. And the other centerpiece of the exhibit are these acts of Congress and acts of Parliament, and uh, we have colonial maps, and we have newspapers from that time frame. So anyone can go. It's a free exhibit, and it's also based upon the work that we do here with statutesandstories.com, which is the website where you can read about all these things. In fact, we'll be posting more pictures and more descriptions of the items on the exhibit. So that's the statutesandstories.com website and the free exhibit, which runs through the 15th at Nova Southeastern University. And we also will have two more speakers. We have a speaker coming up next Tuesday, and people can go to the NSU website, and uh, they can look and see the times and dates. And then also on the 14th of April, we have Rand Cholet, who is the president of the, and we've heard us talk about this in prior radio calls, this is the president of the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society, and he's speaking on the 14th of next month at 2 o'clock at the Cortilla Gallery, and he's going to have some singing, so he'll be giving a comparison of the history and the musical with uh, the folks who are all the fans of Alexander Hamilton. So that's a little bit of background about the exhibit. Did you want to add anything, David, about uh, the exhibit? Because David spoke, by the way, yesterday was his presentation about his paintings, and his beautiful artwork is on display at the exhibit. Well, you, you mentioned most of it, so, um, yeah, I just have the, uh, the reproductions that I had done of my paintings from the Union Oyster House restaurant, which basically talk about the history of, the, uh, of that area concerning the printer publisher Isaiah Thomas. And, uh, and the, the prints that I have, the, uh, the posters, everybody doesn't go into detail about the history and how I actually come, came up with the, uh, the compositions and, and how I researched it, et cetera. And uh, so those are surrounding the uh, beautiful works by, by Alexander Hamilton, the book. Well, let, uh, let me interrupt you for a second. The audience needs to know 
that how is it you come up with the images for your paintings? Are you doing research and you're imagining these scenes, or basically textually you pretty much know who's yeah. you know, the, the the room with a view in it and where the, where the room well, where all this happens? Were there contemporary illustrations that sparked your uh, imagination? No, um, the views were. Well, let's see. There there are a couple of uh, interior scenes. Of, of the printer. Now, what I did was research the heck out of um, printing offices, printing shops from the 18th century. Okay. And uh, to do that, I took a trip to Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, and observed and studied a uh, print shop out there and how they worked the presses and, and how they organized the shop. Then when I came back to Boston, I was able to sort of set up an interior view uh, for, for the painting. Now, the, the paintings are all of of Isaiah Thomas, the printer-publisher, not to be confused with a basketball player. And, um, and that, that's basically what my talk was about as well. So, so each painting deals with his, his, uh, his life during the five or six year period that he was in Boston creating the Massachusetts Spy newspaper and publishing it, and, uh, which was a very subversive and very rebellious paper against the British. So, so the paintings are set up with, with, the, with, with the research that I had done of those various places, and I had some exterior scenes of, of Isaiah Thomas escaping from Boston and, and, and sending his presses off to Worcester because he was chased out by the British. And while, uh, in order to do that, I studied some British maps that were created at the time by the British military. And um, these maps were, were basically uh, munitions uh, locations. But they're extremely accurate maps. So I was able to, to, to glean from that views uh, of different angles and different areas to set up the paintings. And then I imagined through the architecture of, of that day uh, what the streets would have looked like. And I, and I researched one of the streets where he had his uh, print shop on. And I was able to go to the Hall of Deeds and study which, which residents, which businesses were set up on that street during 1775. So who had a business of, of like a butcher shop or a baker and everything, right? So I was able to, to try to understand which house was what and where it was located. And that kind of created a, a sense of, of the signs that they would have had on the, on the doors and, it's, and so on. So, um, so I was able to set up various views using the research and, uh, and, and the history that, that was documented. And also Isaiah Thomas's own writing of how he how he escaped from Boston and how he uh, dealt with the British trying to clamp down on his uh, on his print shop. So, uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, that uh, that that pretty much does. I, it's important that the audience, uh, who knows, there might be painters in the audience, and uh, it's so. Uh, what I find about your art is that you really dedicate time to the facial expressions of the characters in the paintings, and you kind of like create a a, a a moment in time, uh, either. Uh, you know, the closing statement of an article, or the, you know, or debating what uh, what uh, what is going to be printed, you can just tell that it's like a frozen moment in time. Well, you should yeah, know, David, that we have recommended you to Patrick Larkin, who is a his, uh, historical novelist, and uh, hopefully you'll be hearing back from him. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, for, for for Isaiah Thomas himself, <clears throat> when I did the various uh, paintings of him. I studied his, you know, there are only uh, paintings of him done as an, as an older guy, and uh, because he wasn't famous when he was young, but he was extremely rich and famous at, you know, as, he, as he was, uh, when he left Boston after the war. 
And uh, so I studied those portraits, and I tried to imagine him younger, in his 20s, and using his features and, and, and pushing his back about 25, 34, maybe 30, 40 years. And I was able to get a sense of, of his uh, expressions and his, and his you know, morphology and try to understand what he looked like. So, yeah, it was, uh, I was trying to keep accurate. I wasn't, there wasn't a lot of um, fanciful imagination. I was really trying to stick to, to factual history as much as possible. Okay, so if we were to take a tour to Boston, where would you start and where would you end? Okay, let's start where I grew up. Go ahead. Hold on. Everyone wants to say something. So, oh, I was going to ask what I was planning on doing, and we can do it either way. It doesn't matter. But I was planning on going a little, a little bit through the history to warm us up about what occurred in Boston, and then David, David could just then take us on the tour of Boston. But uh, would you agree it's, it's useful to do a couple minutes talking about some of the Boston history first? Fine with me. Okay, so well, let me do just a few minutes walking through some of the Boston history. So why do we care about Boston, and why did we bring in David in the first place on a Hamilton exhibit, which is what's going on at NSU, when his, his artwork focuses on this Revolutionary War printer? And the quick answer is that Alexander Hamilton's first essay was published by Isaiah Thomas. This is when Alexander Hamilton was a, was a kid in the Caribbean and the hurricane came, and people who watch the musical are familiar with that, that song. So Alexander Hamilton is a writer, and you know, today we have the internet, today we have radio, we have all kinds of media, but back then, the, really the only media, other than people talking to one another, was newspapers. So without, and that, without the, the means of the, these newspapers being published at great risk, because the, 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 the British wanted to shut down, they, David can give us examples of how they would threaten Isaiah Thomas to tar and feather. Tar and feather, they made effigies of them and burned them and... Uh, and really threatened him to death. They, they actually condemned him to death, which he obviously survived. Now, for the audience uh, to get a picture, what percentage of people were pro the king and what percentage were patriots? And what percentage was in the middle and didn't care? Yeah, probably the silent majority was uh, saying, leave me alone. But we'll, we'll look into that. We'll do some research on that, Manny. It's an excellent question. Yeah. Okay. So I, I always like to start off with some quotes. So here's... Here's, you know, a, a quote you may have heard, David, which is, that, you know, why Boston? And the answer is Boston is the birthplace of the American Revolution. They're proud of that. The American Revolution began in Boston, so how can I support that? And the answer is, and let's go back to some of our prior radio broadcasts. Everybody will remember that we spent an entire hour talking about the Navigation Acts and the economic theories behind mercantilism in Britain. And uh, through this period of what was referred to as salutary neglect, the British had taxes, but they didn't really collect it. And as long as you paid a bribe, they looked the other way. And as long as everyone was making money and the king was making money, uh, they, they looked the other way. But after the French and Indian War, Britain needed to get more taxes because they incurred so much debt to fight that. You know, it was one of the first world wars. It was fought in Canada. It was fought in the American colonies. So that was the French-American, French and Indian War, which ended in 1763. So the British have all this war debt. They need to start paying it off. So they start putting in place the Stamp Act of 1765. And people can go to statutesandstories.com and read all about the Stamp Act of 1765 and the Tea Act of 1773. So then you have these protests that occur. So we're warming up to, to David. These protests occur. The Boston 
the Boston Tea Party takes place in 1773, and I overlooked and I didn't mention that the Boston Massacre was in 1770 when the British were bringing in more troops to enforce some of these taxes, which were referred to as the Townsend Acts, and uh, there was some shooting, and I remember from prior radio discussions how John Adams was ready and represented some of the British soldiers, and that tells you something about John Adams. He stood for rule, on the rule of law, and uh, some of the soldiers were innocent, and he defended them. So that was the Boston Massacre, 1770, the Boston Tea Party, 1773. And now I want to ask some questions for the uh, the, the hosts, for Manny and for Ed, and then maybe the listeners can uh, try to answer as well uh, in their minds and uh, try to think if they remember this from their school days. But the, the British retaliate and respond to the to the Boston Tea Party with several acts. Do you guys remember what the names of the, uh, the acts were or what they were described as? Well, the, uh, shouldn't I say the, the Stamp Act? Am I wrong or right? Nope. You're right that the Stamp Act imposed taxes. Wait, wait, wait. You moved away from the, your phone. We, the audience couldn't hear what you said. Oh, you're right that there was the Stamp the Act. The Intolerable Acts? So the Stamp Act was 1765. Then you have the Boston Tea Party. And the, then the Intolerable Acts, where the British were, were had authority to mingle in all affairs. Ordering of soldiers and houses. Right. Perfect. So there were five acts. And we can debate is it four or five. But the first act, chronologically, was the Boston Harbor Act. So what does the Boston Harbor Act do? This is 1774, and the act says that we're going to blockade Boston Harbor, no ships in and out of Boston Harbor, until the colonists pay restitution for the, and here I could ask you how many tons it was, but 42 tons of tea was thrown into Boston Harbor. So until the Bostonians pay the cost of the tea and the taxes that would have been due on the tea, the harbor gets shut down. That's the first of the acts. The second act was the Massachusetts Government Act. And by the way, David can tell us about some of these exhibits that we'll get to, or places in Boston where you can resurrect and recreate some of these events. So you have to stay tuned for that. So the second act, just to go through the list, was the Massachusetts Government Act. <clears throat> what does the Massachusetts Government Act do? That removes, it revokes the charter, which dated back to 1691. It removed Massachusetts Charter and takes away their ability to be democratic, removes their democratic government, and replaces their legislature with elections. You used to have elected representatives with royally appointed representatives. <clears throat> so David will walk us through you know, some of these ways of celebrating this old colonial Boston. And they also appointed, the king appointed Thomas Gage, was the general that gets appointed to come into Boston to basically run the show. And here's a famous quote. I like to always give some specific primary sources and references. So according to General Gage, quote, America is a mere bully from one end to the other, and the Bostonians are by far the greatest bullies. So General Gage comes in to be a bigger bully, and he's going to suppress Boston, he's going to suppress Massachusetts so that they learn their lesson, and the other colonies will try to do the same thing Boston did. Just rounding out the list, and then David will take us away. The next act was the Quartering Act, and I think I heard maybe Ed or Manny mention the Quartering Act, there were actually two quartering acts. You had a quartering act dating back to the 1760s, but now we have the second quartering act, which was more severe, and the colonists did not appreciate the fact. And maybe I'll ask you this question. We are big supporters of the Bill of Rights for obvious reasons and of the Constitution. So here the question for the listeners is, which of the Bill of Rights relates to the quartering of troops? Anyone want to take a quick answer? Manny or Ed? Ed, you know... If Go I ahead. think you should direct these questions to another attorney so that you can show him up, please, because, you know. I'll give you a hint. It's right after the right to bear arms. It comes right after, so that tells you how important this is. Wow. Uh, little, 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 
my God, I would have to know the civil rights, I mean, the, the Bill of Rights in order. Right after the uh, right to bear arms, it's speech was first, faith was first, was second, uh, faith was first, uh, arms was second. Um, yeah, it's, uh, the First Amendment is speech and, and the other assembly and, and religion. Second Amendment, bearing arms. The Third Amendment is... Quartering in the houses. Quartering. So the Third Amendment is the, is the Quartering Amendment. So because of the Quartering Act, when we adopted the... I think the audience needs a real explanation on that because come, I'm dumbfounded. I no. Manny, what you got to do is you got to have your uh, copy of the Constitution with you. Oh, you want me to be like Eric Bowling? Oh, yeah. please. Okay, go ahead. Please, uh, please elaborate. Rounding out the list of acts, so they adopt, and we already mentioned some of these, the Boston Harbor Act, the Quartering Act, the Massachusetts Government Act, which takes away the right to have self-government in Massachusetts, the Administration of Justice Act, which was called the Murder Act. What does the Administration of Justice Act do? It says that the British troops, they're not going to go before juries anymore of Americans. They're going to be allowed to be tried back in Britain, which basically gives them immunity if they shoot at Americans. They're not going to be tried before Americans. They're going to be tried overseas in Britain or in other colonies, wherever Gage wants to send them. So that was also very controversial, that Administration of Justice Act. In fact, the colonists call it the Murder Act. And the last act is the, court, is the Quebec Act. And we can debate about was that one of the intolerable acts. But it was very popular in Canada for the reasons I'll quickly describe. So the British wanted to gain the loyalty of the Catholic pro-French Canadians up in Quebec. So the Quebec Act says... We're going to extend the boundaries of Quebec south to the Mississippi River on the west and to the Ohio River, and we're going to recognize Roman Catholicism as the official religion in Canada, which is quite interesting that Britain was willing to do that. It also provided for royally appointed governors to have control over Canada, and it instituted French civil law. And some of us may remember that French law is very different than American. We have a system of justice and a system of law called common law. In France, they use... Back then, it wasn't called the Napoleonic Code, but they had a very different judicial system in France, and they didn't use jury trials. So that was one of the things that really upset Alexander Hamilton, to take away English law in Canada and use French law. And by the way, Alexander Hamilton did more writing. There are essays he wrote challenging the Quebec Act. So this is the, the background about why Boston is so important, and I think that's a perfect segue into David, who can tell us all about what you can see in Boston, starting with the Union Oyster House, David. Okay. Well, the Union Oyster House, uh, second, okay, can you hear me? Hello? Uh, yeah, stay close to the phone. Okay, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually on the phone now, but, um, yeah, the Union Oyster House is a, uh, it's an old restaurant. It was, it was first a, uh, built in 1715 around that time, and at that time it was used as a, uh, as a grain store, or, you know, grains shop and, uh, cold goods shop, and, uh, and it was um, it was a small little place, but then uh, after the after a few years, it it uh, it, it was uh, it became the restaurant which is called the Union House, which is the oldest restaurant in, in the country right now, and it it became a restaurant in 1815, and uh, it has a history with Isaiah Thomas on the uh, on the site basically his his print shop was right nearby, and uh, and then living upstairs was a guy named Benjamin Thompson. Or later on, Count Rumford, who uh, who was a scientist, and he had a uh, he had created something called the Rumford stove. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. Probably in Florida, you haven't because you don't need fireplaces out here anyway. Right. So uh, then we had uh, the Oyster House 
was uh, was taken over it was, had, take, had taken it over in 1815, as I said, and it has a history where Daniel Webster used to eat oysters there, and they they have a they have a uh, you know a theory that he was eating something like 12 to 15 oysters every few minutes or something like this. I heard some crazy story about him. So my paintings, which are upstairs in their heritage room, deal with Isaiah Thomas and Daniel Webster. And uh, okay, so let's start there because that's 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 on the on the Freedom Trail. Right nearby, down the street, is Faneuil Hall, and Faneuil Hall was a uh, a meeting house. And you know, it was let's see, different people like uh, James Otis and Samuel Adams and uh, and various people like that gave gave speeches there, and uh, they wild up the uh, the revolution a little. Now, bit there. now these places were playhouses that. Uh, or there were uh, there were meeting houses. Just meeting houses. So describe to the audience what a colonial meeting house it was. Just a regular room with a view, or was it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a big room with um, with uh, it's it's two tiered uh, level. So so you've got you've got seats sort of that surround the central area, and then you have a, a lower area with with more uh, seats and areas for people to sit. And you have a, a basically like a stage or a podium. That people can speak from, and nowadays it's used primarily for, um, you know, for what 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 would you call it when you when you uh, uh, sign in people to to become American citizens? It's a uh, oath, naturalization. Oh, naturalization. I don't, yeah, yeah, exactly. Swearing in at Daniel Halls in Boston. Okay. So it's used for that, and it's a very historical place, so it's it's nice. So right down the street from Daniel Hall is is the site. Where the Boston Massacre took place, and uh, and that was when the British attacked a, a, a couple of uh, Bostonians, a few Bostonians, and they were throwing snowballs at the British, and the British shot back at them with with light bullets, and uh, and that and there's a uh, plaque that marks the spot right. It's right in front of the old state house, uh, which is towards the park. And now the, the 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 park, the Commons, Boston Commons. Originally started as a uh, as a grazing area for for cattle and sheep and uh, cows and um, and then around 18 uh, late, late 1700s it was limited to a few cows and then like 80 cows and then in 18 something 1850 I think it was um, it was closed off to, to any kind of uh, cattle but the British were camping there uh, right before the Battle of Bunker Hill and that's where they camped from and then they. They moved through Boston to or towards the Charles River and uh, were able to attack Charles Charlestown and and uh, that's where that's that's how they got to the battle you know to, to Bunker Hill where they where they waged war against the uh, the colonists and uh, now further up on the uh, Freedom Trail you have Old North End which is where you would find the Old North Church does anybody know the significance of the Old North Church? I have no idea. Yeah, that's where they had one if my one if by land, two if by sea. Got it. Yeah. Lanterns. And, and that's right. And uh, so Paul Revere was staked out, and he and he looked for these lanterns, and he saw two lanterns there. So the British were coming by sea, and he was dispatched by Isaiah Thomas to uh, to to run out towards Concord and Lexington to inform the colonists that that the uh, the, the impending. Uh, uh, invasion was happening, and uh, and th- th- I'll bring I'll, I'll come back to that in a little while with another another location in uh, in right near Boston, which is important. But um, okay, so so Isaiah Thomas, as I mentioned before, uh, rode a- across the river with his friend Joseph Warren, and uh, and they basically uh, 
pushed off towards Lexington, and they, they fought in the Battle of Lexington and, uh, and conquered. So Isaiah Thomas was a publisher, so right after the battle, he, went, he, he sent his presses off to, uh, to Worcester, and right after the battle, he, he uh, printed out the very first um, war correspondence, essentially, an article about the Battle of Lexington to alert the colonists that the war had begun. And this was the very first time that there was an American uh, journalist that was that was becoming a war correspondent. There's never been a you know a story written about a war or a battle in the states before. So um, so let's see. So we're now in Concord and Lexington. So um, let's go back to Boston. Old Ironsides. Do you know Iron, Old Ironsides? The USS Constitution. That is. That is. And do you know why? It, you know, Ed. You know, you're just blowing me away today. Sorry? Ed is just uh, killing me you know, today. Yeah, now, he's, he's good. David, you know, one th- one thing you didn't mention is that the British uh, marched out to Lexington and Concord because they thought that the Americans had some uh, firearms and, and ammunition there. Is that right? Exactly. exactly. And, they were, and they were going to shut it down and take, and take the munitions, but, uh, but they were a little late and, and uh, the battle started. So uh, the thing was about Old Ironsides, you know how it got its name, Old Ironsides? It was uh, a wooden ship, but they put iron uh, uh, armor on the on the side. Nope, not that. Uh-oh. It was, was, oh man, you're now. Uh, I blew it. You blew it. You were up on a pedestal, and boom, close. someone you're kicked close. your stool. <laughs> you're close. No, I think. Well, let's see the Battle of 1812 with uh, the British. Um, the the, can, the British cannonballs were bouncing off its sides, and the British. Nicknamed it Old Ironsides because the, the cannonballs wouldn't penetrate the uh, the hull. Yeah, I, I had read that those American were uh, kind of super frigates. They were kind of reinforced with uh, uh, wooden beams inside, so they were no, very right. sturdy. We only had six of them. That's right. Very very heavy wooden beams. Yeah, so that we only had six of them, but we they were very good. Yeah, that's right. And and Old Ironsides was a very I think the oldest commissioned ship right now. It's still commissioned. Okay. And it's still it's still under under command by the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So they uh, they they basically uh, yeah. So that that's on the that's near the Freedom Trail. You could go to Charlestown and see old Ironsides, and also is the uh, the, the Bunker Hill Monument, which is so, you know I guess pretty much behind it, and uh, that that's where the Battle of Bunker Hill took place. So let's see. What am I forgetting in Boston? Um, oh, there's a G. Oh, the yeah, the Kings. Chapel Burial Ground. It's the oldest cemetery in the city, and it's in North End. And you'll find there Emerson's Ralph Waldo Emerson's father. And uh, let's see. I'm not sure if that's the one that's in North End. Hold on a second. I'm, I'm, I always confuse those. The, the Granary Burial Ground. Um, and then uh, now Adam has to take over. Sorry? No, no. Hold on, hold on. Well, yeah, uh, oh, let's make uh, let's make Ed take over. Well, sure. Well, you know, in, in, in 1837, Ralph Waldo Emerson was living out near Concord, and yeah. the townspeople put up a a plaque or something, and he wrote um, a poem. And I know the first four lines: okay. "By by the bridge that arched a flood." So it was by the bridge on the river. It was flooded. It was April. Uh, to April's breeze, their flag unfurled. Here the embattled farmer stood and fired the shot heard round the world. Oh. Wow, man. Right. Check this out, man. Oh, this, yeah, that's required that to become a U.S. citizen. Yeah, what? Well, they used to be required? Yeah, it used to be, yeah. 
Unbelievable. Make sure you were ready to be an American. Bear arms against government tyranny. They should have enforced that in the later days so half the Cubans They've couldn't become citizens. They've given up on it, yeah. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, you, you, you want to... Hold on, I'm going to put in these. Well, you guys can't do gossip on the radio. You know, can't be whispering either on the radio. So, Ed, take over. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, so I wanted to mention, uh, where did that shot take place, you know? You have to be much closer to the Concord. phone. This. Is that okay? Your yeah. audience can't hear you unless you're close to the phone. You've got to be careful how you move your, your body. Concord. What's this? Is, this? is this loud enough? Not really. God. Okay, hold on. How about now? <laughs> Uh, you know, we sound like we're on candlelight and the British are coming. <laughs> well, we're ready for them. Well, okay, so can you tell me where the shot was heard? The shot was heard in Concord, I think. Yeah, where, whereabouts exactly, do you know? Uh, by the bridge that arched the flood. <laughs> That's right. You're, That's right. You're good. You're good. The old, old North Bridge. And, uh, and the, the colonists were staked out, sort of hiding. And that was the first instance in, in war history where, where uh, at the, you know, I guess, recorded war history, where uh, guerrilla warfare was uh, was taking place. So they hid, and they waited for the British to, to come over, who were marching in, in, in rows and very organized, and then the colonists just opened fire. And, uh, and so they were kind of pissed off because of Lexington, and, well, uh, where the houses were burned, and, and they, the British basically surprised them over there. And, uh, but the colonists uh, won that battle, and they chased the British all the way back to Boston. Well, one thing, you know, the colonists had the latest assault rifles of the day because yep. many of them had rifles that were actually rifled and were more accurate, and they were used to uh, using their rifles for hunting and food and stuff like that, whereas the British relied on forming ranks, very organized soldiers, and they were firing really smooth-bore muskets, and wow, so yeah. they were less accurate, but they, uh, they counted on the effect, the impact. Wow. That's right. Well, they, they, yeah, the, uh, the colonists had very accurate uh, uh, rifles. Hold on. Anna wants to say something. Hold on. So just to give some statistics, and this is the sort of thing you can read on statutesandstories.com. So although the British would win battles when you had Americans standing in line shooting at the British together on a pitched field, and Washington was a smart guy, he realized the British were better trained and the British could win the kind of battles that the British had trained for, and we were not as well trained. But on the march back, and this is a 16-mile march to get back to Boston, you had the Patriot marksmen firing at them, as David was saying, from behind rocks, behind stones walls behind trees so although the british beat us if you will at lexington on the way back into the city of austin here are the statistics nearly 300 british soldiers were killed wounded or missing in action and the patriots suffered less than 100 casualties so it's one thing to win the battle it's another thing to get back home to base and uh, when you especially when you have a hostile local indigenous population which is why you have david describing it as uh, this guerrilla warfare mm -hmm. here is david so, yeah, now we're in the uh, suburbs of Boston. So uh, I want to start with a place where, actually, I, I, oh, I'm, I just want to add, I am a native Florid, Floridian. I was born in Fort Walton Beach. And then uh, my family uh, all moved up to, to New England, and, uh, and I grew up in Sudbury, Massachusetts. And uh, so I was, I was uh, very close and, you know, very familiar with a little place called the Wayside Inn. In Sudbury. Does anybody know what that is? Absolutely not. Okay. 
<laughs> Remember, I'm a first-generation American. I'm just a poor Cuban yeah. refugee's kid. Man, he's just... Well, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you something. You know it, and you probably don't even know it. Did you ever hear the first lines of a poem, Listen, My Children? Oh, that's, oh the uh, Midnight Rider, Paul Revere? Yep, that's right. Listen, My Children, you know, shout out to my... Uh, I was going to say Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. No. Now, that was written by Longfellow in the Wayside Inn. Oh, okay. And it's, it's part of a group of poems called called Tales of the Wayside Inn. And uh, the inn was built, oh, a long time ago, back in 1707, I believe. It doesn't exist and today? Or well, does? wait, wait, wait. Is that in Boston? No, no. that's in Sudbury, Massachusetts. Oh, because they're in, uh, I grew, uh, I, we lived in uh, Scarsdale, New York for 21 years, and there was a Wayside Tavern on the oh. Boston Post Road. Well, yeah, no kidding. Well, the Wayside Inn is on Boston Post Road in, in Sudbury. Absolutely. Same yeah. road. It's called it the same road. road all the way up. Oh, that's my easy. God. It's the same road the whole way up. And it's a Wayside yeah, Inn. That's right. It's a very long road. Yeah. Wow. It goes, to, to, goes all the way to New York. Please tell me it's paved. Huh? Anyway, so, uh, yeah, it was built in 1707 as a, as a, as a two-room house. And over the years, it expanded and, and uh, became what it is today. Now, if anybody's curious... You can actually see a painting I'm working on at the moment of the Wayside Inn, and I put it online, and you could see it if you want to jot this down and maybe go to it right now. It's at davidwellsroth.com, then forward slash artwork, A-R-T-W-O-R-K, forward slash Wayside, and then hit enter. And you'll see my painting as it's, as it's uh, being worked on. It's nearly finished. So uh, it's a beautiful place, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's a plaque there saying George Washington passed by and you know, all sorts of stuff. So it's, it's a very old, traditional place. And right now, they have on the, uh, on the front, over the front door I think a British it should, flag. Uh, honestly, I think it should say that Ed Vidal passed by. No. <laughs> yeah. Why not? If you've been to the Why one uh, on your side of the neck of the woods, they should have one on both places. That's right. There you go. <laughs> and, you know, they should have a plaque for everybody that actually passed by. And, uh, you know, that would, you know, it would be a huge plaque. But I, I was a busboy there during college, and, uh, and I was actually fired because I, I fell down on a puddle of water and nearly killed a couple of old ladies with, uh, with my tray. But it was, you know, dangerous, dangerous job. But, um, but I didn't. They, they survived, and I, and I was fired. Rightly so. But, um, yeah, so you should you should check out that that painting. It's it's nearly done, and uh, I, I'd say it again: davidwellsroth.com forward slash artwork slash wayside. So that, uh, that's great me. that people are still buying art, uh, realistic art. That's great. Well, uh, I, I think it me. means that Ed and Vidal and I were going to have to commission you to make a painting of each other. No, no. Oh, no. there you go. The concrete conservatives. <laughs> And man, uh, and I'm going to put down in the, in the town center here because we're the center of the universe now. Yeah, Kibis Gain? Of okay. course. That should be fun. I could do that. Well, it'll be part of uh, when they have the Minutemen uh, practice for all the Kibis Gainers with their assault rifles come out to the village green. No, no. These people yeah. are all South Americans. They don't believe in the right to bear arms. No. I'd be the only one with a gun. Okay. And we'd be, uh, we'd be called the second men. Yeah, you, you could dress it by, like, like Minutemen. Call yourself the second man. Los segundos, they right. would call us. <laughs> You'd be wearing warmer clothing because it's down south. So. Well, they're not really speaking English down here, so, you know, yeah. there's, there's no colonial patriots. I think, like, two-thirds of Key Biscayne is expats from South America, right? Absolutely. Oh, really? Absolutely. Okay. Now, it's, wow. it's, it could be changed in the matter of the next 10 years because of the Trump 
deregulation. Well, so many people are coming down yeah, the so tax Yeah, so many people from change. up north are not coming because you can't write off your income tax. So, oh, by the way, uh, before Adam gets on, I just want to make a shout-out to a few people. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. I thought what? we were your only friends. Uh, no, I'm talking about family. You're my friend. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> we have low self-esteem here in the studio, no. so you gotta, you got to clarify these things. Okay, great. Yeah, my parents. Hi, Mom and Dad. Love you guys. My Uncle Larry, love you too. And my family, you know, everybody else is listening. And, uh, and my friend Nora in Norway. And I hope you're well. And uh, anyway, here's Adam. I'll talk to you all. I have a feeling Nora's your moose. Is, is Nora your moose? No, 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 Nora's an author. You know, I think I mentioned last time, we're writing a book together. She wrote the book, and I'm doing the illustrations. And oh, that's right. You did tell me that. Oh, that's come. Right, Girl by the River. You got it. So, uh, when it's released, I'll let you guys know. Yeah, we'll have, uh, a, we'll have a release party for you down here in South Florida. Awesome. I'll bring Aaron from Norway, and then we'll do that. That'll be great. Oh, well, great. fantastic. Thank you for your contribution here to WSQF Blink Radio, Statues and Stories Hour. Here's Adam. Take care. So we're passing the cord from one person to another, so you'll be able to hear us louder. But my only observation that I wanted to make is that once we finish the tour of Boston, once David goes through all of the remaining sites that he has on his hit parade, it, I think it's useful for you to ask him a couple questions about his portrait work. So a, a couple things that are worthwhile to ask him about is uh, what does he put into a good portrait, and why are all these judges all around the country hiring him to do portraits? The That's other quick good. observation is what magical powers does he have as a portrait artist? artist in order to uh, to, uh, to do things that uh, you can't do with a picture, but you can do with a portrait. Right. So uh, feel free to ask him some questions well, yeah. about the process of doing portraits. Yeah. And it's, it's really fascinating because I've seen him, how he, how he does the work and what goes into it. But I'm going to give you back to David to continue the process of walking us through what you have in the store at Boston. And if we have any time after that, we could also talk about some more of the Boston history. But here is David to continue the discussion of the Freedom Trail and the remaining sites around the city. And, uh, you know, favorite places where you like to go. So here is David. Okie doke. So, yeah, first, do you have any more questions here? Yeah, well, I, I thought that was interesting about the uh, the portraits, and I wonder yeah. if you use photography for portraits, because I'm used to seeing portraits like in law school, uh, the uh, retired prof law professors often get their portraits up, and the mm -hmm. presidents of universities, uh, some corporations, they have pictures of their CEOs, uh, although that's becoming less and less, uh, so I wonder how, what 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 do you do? Do you have any uh, visual no, tricks? I'll tell you, but, but I don't know if I mentioned last time I was on um, about my portraits in Puerto Rico. Did, did right. We talk about that? Yeah. No, that's very interesting. That all the you're doing a, a portrait of every judge going back to 1898. Yep, that's right. And uh, and since I was since I was painting it in Boston, I had to take pictures of these judges. Okay. Not, not the deceased ones. I mean, we, they had old photos, but, um, but the... Uh, you had a medium call them up. photograph the judge with about two or three hundred photos, because okay. I wanted to get every possible combination and angle and everything. And then I sat down with the judge for about five, or, five hours or so, four or five hours, and, and did watercolor sketches of them. And the sketches were not used verbatim for the painting, but they were used really to get an idea of how the judge moved his face. I didn't have him keep still. He was talking and moving around, so I was able to get a sense of, of how his, uh, his anatomical structure and his face, huh? Or her. Yeah, and, and actually, no, I didn't paint it. No, all the female judges gave me the um, photos. They didn't want it to be portrayed, except from a, from a photo, from a younger photo. So, uh, yeah, so, 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 the, uh, so they would sit down. They would, I would talk to them, and... Uh, 
and, and watch their face move, watch the muscles move around and everything and get a real sense. So when I sat down in Boston, I really felt like I was, you know, with them when I was painting. And, and I could remember all the, uh, it was like an outline. I could remember, all, remember how they looked, really, and from all angles, and, and it was interesting. Yeah. So then um, I, would, I would put together, for each judge, for example, I, I put together a photo montage taking, for example, a collar from, from his suit, or from his clothing, and then maybe, maybe uh, one view with a flag behind him, and put together a montage that I would send to the chief judge who approved it, and, uh, and then from that I would, I would make the painting. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I was able to do six paintings at a time uh, every six months, and then send off six at a time. And Great. just kept that going like a, like a factory. Well, David, I, I'm one, one area of Boston that you haven't talked about is oh, the, sure. the Fens. Where is it's that? The Fens. The Fens. You mean like where the, the Red Sox are? Well, the Fenway Park, because the only exactly. the other Boston massacre that I know about was administered in 1978 by the New York Yankees. Oh, how about, how about 2004 by the Red Sox? Well, yeah. No, that that happened in Yankee Stadium, actually. Yeah, oh, no, that was in Yankee Stadium. You're right. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um... Was it Buckner that that uh, that screwed that one up? No, was no, Buckner wasn't on yet. Oh, now that that's uh, in 1978. You said. Yeah, oh, that's when the Yankees caught the Red Sox, and Bucky F and Dent hit the home run. Oh God! <laughs> hey, are you guys Yankee fans or, or Sox fans out here? Yankee hey, fans. What are you talking about? We're the Marlins. We beat the Yankees. Remember? Oh, Once. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're damn right. Oh, How many yeah. rings do you have? So when the Fox play the Yankees, who do you root for? Come y- on. I turn, off, I turn off the television. Yanks. Huh? I turn off the television. There are more Yankee fans in, in uh, Marlins Park whenever they play than there are really? Marlins fans. This is really? true. Well, Just like there are more New York Jack fans in a Dolphin game yes. than Dolphin. Yeah. <laughs> well, about the, the fans, you know, the fans... You've got Fenway Park, which is America's oldest surviving baseball field. See, America, I mean, Boston has a lot of old things. It's got the Oyster House, it's got the Wayside Inn, all very old, you know, the oldest, and Fenway Park. And uh, so that's right on, on the Fens, which is which is basically a huge swamp. It's right. Like, that's why they called it the Fens. Sorry? That's why they called it the Fens? That's right. That's right. And at the other end of the Fenway Park is the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, which is which is a real yeah, you know, very state nice. of the art up, upper you know level museum, and um, and, it, and there you can see a lot of old art you know by you know there's a portrait of Paul Revere by John Hancock I mean sorry by uh, by John Singleton Copley and a portrait of John Hancock, and uh, and you know it's, it's a gorgeous museum so you, you should check that out after you have lunch at the at the uh, Union Oyster House okay the paintings in the Heritage Room. So, uh, yeah. So, let's see. What else can we talk about? About uh, here's, here's Adam. Hold on a second. Well, I mean, uh, were you uh, talk about other commission works that had to do with American history? Were there, are there other uh, families, uh, prominent families, or just clients that have hired you for uh, stuff that unrelated to uh, your your original works? I mean, stuff. Talk to us about the stories that you've had to paint. That people just wanted out of the blue to, I don't know, paint uh, our our wedding or our wedding anniversary or birth of our children or a, a moment in time. Has that ever occurred, or has it always been historical paintings? 
Adam took the phone away from David, so I'll, you'll repeat the question for him in a second. But I wanted to real quickly mention. Why don't you just give the phone over to Max? Max will talk. Uh, speak <laughs> We're going to have Max. Uh, in, yeah, in a few Max weeks. gonna have his own show because you know. I agree. Max would be an excellent uh, radio guest. But I wanted to make the quick observation when David was talking about the Museum of Finance in Boston, that for our Hamilton exhibit, David drove over to the museum and took a picture and then printed, because we put that in our Hamilton exhibit. And it's a very famous picture of Alexander Hamilton, which is the $10 picture, which is on the $10 bill. So that picture of Hamilton, so we can ask David about uh, who painted that picture and, and the trouble, right? The, the trouble picture of Hamilton. So the, the question that Manny was asking when I took the phone from you, David, was, "What other kinds of work have you done other than portraits?" And uh, here is David. Hold on. Yeah, I had done uh, oh, a lot of, a lot of city scenes, uh, New York and and Boston cityscapes, level landscapes. I, I do a lot of traveling around to coastal views. Uh, I, I I got attracted to coastal painting because my mother uh, was an oil painter. And uh, and she used to go down to the Gulf of Mexico when I was a kid and and paint by the by the uh, Gulf and I used to sit by her and watch it and and uh, so she basically got me interested in, in in painting. My dad showed me perspective when I was a kid too, and uh, that's when I got interested in New York City scenes. My parents were both uh, native New Yorkers, so uh, yeah. So I, I I had done a lot of landscaping and and uh, landscape painting and cityscape painting and and so on. And I love painting people. Uh, plus still eyes and, and things like this. And, um, oh, by the way, I, during the shout-out, one more shout-out, because I'll, I, I wanted to say hello to my girlfriend in China, but she's not listening at this moment, but she will hear it at some point. So, hi, Sunny. <laughs> okay, go ahead. She, she's in China visiting her. Why don't you say, like, it, what, say it in Mandarin, at least. Yeah, or is, are you like Matt Tao? Who? <laughs> no, no, no. She, she's, she's now an American citizen. Oh, get it? Matteo. Matteo. Oh, the linebacker for the Notre Dame. <laughs> now you're the blunt of our jokes. You set yourself up. If you're not going to say a love, you know, uh, you know, write a love letter or something in, in Mandarin. Say it in Mandarin. Yeah, you can hear us worldwide, you know, wsqfradio.com forward slash live. Let's have that. Or on radio.garden. And we can also go radio.garden. It's absolutely. So go ahead, you know. Propose, <laughs> pro propose matrimony. Uh, tell her you got a painting waiting for her. I mean, do something. No, she, she's actually out there visiting her parents. She's from Beijing. She, she's living in, in the Boston area, uh, and and uh, but she goes back every so often, you know, to take care of her parents and to, to travel around. So she's right now with a bunch of uh, colleagues from from elementary school uh, days, and she's just traveling to, around to, to get instructions but, from anyway, Chinese intelligence. Right? What was that? <laughs> you coming back to hack the Artist Institute or something? Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. She, she actually, I taught her how to paint too. She, she, she was drawing before, but I taught her how to paint. She Great, beautifully. But uh, so that means she hacked you. Well, yeah, I was a good teacher. Yeah, how about that? I was a good teacher. Cultural appropriation. She's stealing yeah. trademarks already. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, see, so, so did you have any more questions about my art career? Uh, well, no. Now that you told me you just painted boring landscapes, that's it. We're done. I was no, I, it's only not wanted, I only wanted revolutionary stuff, and I set myself up. Well, I, I can tell you, it's in the landscapes. There, there, there are soldiers shooting soldiers. Uh, from oh, the, there you go. Why didn't you say that? <laughs> yeah, there you go. That ain't no. That ain't no. That was battlefield the paintings. <laughs> the red coats. <laughs> when you were telling me that still art of landscape, I'm thinking butterflies and, and willows. No, no. No, no, 
know, those, those are in the, in the background. Yeah, those were battle scenes. He painted uh, battle scenes. Oh, okay, but you didn't say battle scene. Apparently, these were battle scenes. Do you, you have running. anything of uh, Bunker Hill? Uh, not yet. Oh, that's a good idea. I should paint Bunker Hill. Yeah. yeah. That was a, that was a gory one. Yeah, in, in fact, I, I think I'm going to do a, a series of more paintings of, of the Revolutionary War days. And and it's starting with the the Wayside Inn porch, uh painting that I'm working on sure. now. And I think I'm going to probably start, stretch into that, that time period a little bit more. I love it. And yeah, man. That, uh, I think uh, you'd be right on the money because I believe that, uh, you know, what's going on in national politics, people are are starting to be reinvigorated to teach their children about American yeah, history. Yeah, and learn about the beginning right. of America. So right. you could be on to something, um, and as your paintings get large, uh, you could easily have a we'll, imbi- we'll invite you back for Art Basel. Yeah, really, Art Basel needs some help, man, yeah, because yeah. that's some awful stuff. Yeah, and we have oh, a uh, an art critic who has a program here that could bring you... Excuse yeah. me. What do you think about this modern, this modern art and this minimalism and all the other freakazoid stuff I see at Art Basel? Are you? Well, you know, it, it's it's. I, I can't really condemn it because it's a language that I don't really speak with my work. So um, I just don't understand it. Put it that way. I really don't. I don't get it a lot of the time. And uh, and I, I've seen abstract painters from from you know 50, 40 years ago. If they call it modern, even though it's been around since about 120 years now, and this is no longer modern. And, and, and also, my work is called academic. But how could it be called academic when it's not taught in schools anymore? What's taught in schools is abstract, so that's academic. Yep. So I, I don't get it, you know? But, you know, I guess to it's, own, right? I think it's art that's based on not <laughs> having any type of boundaries and, quite frankly, kind of lazy, lazy art. Because you don't have any disciplines either. Yeah, yeah, and and also, also, it's the critics that tell you that that's art. So, so people have to think that's art, and then they buy it. Yeah, because they're told to. And I don't know if they really look at something like that and say, "Oh, I love it." It's, you know, it's evoking an emotion for me. I don't know if that really exists in that type of art. You know, it's yeah. good for filling up big spaces with bright colors, and you know, you could decorate a room with that, and a few splashes of color here and there. So, uh, yeah, how about uh, leaving the room empty and just throwing a bunch of... Well, Manny has some connections with the art scene down here, so we may have you come down to insert some realism into Art ah, Basel. That'll be nice, sure. <laughs> well, there is there are there are situations uh, in Art Basel where you'll see uh, traditional paintings, but it's because some broker brought the art to sell it. There, well, yeah, there you are. But that is a, really a theme of Art Basel. That's, well, that's, yeah. that's David. Yeah, I... I, I it's just baffling me. I mean, some of it's okay, but uh, you know, I just it does not move me. It doesn't doesn't affect me at all, <laughs> not at all. And uh, and they and it looks like they rush out to paint it so that they could you know sell it you know fast for decoration or something. I don't know. But um, I'm probably going to get a lot of nasty letters, and and my studio is going to get burned down. No, our audience is very conservative in its artistic tastes. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, then they'll agree. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, uh, this is pretty much ends our show. So, uh, okay. I can't well, thank you enough. Thank you and, very much. Uh, thank you so much. And hopefully, we'll be again, maybe next week. Oh, well, you know, either that or we're, you know, our puzzle. Or we'll just commission you, and then that's it. We got to, uh, you know, hey. we got to paint Ed Vidal on some kind of mantle or something. Oh, there you go. That's great. Somehow get Trump to uh, to put him in the Supreme Court. No, no. <laughs> hey, that's an idea. Thanks. I'm told. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. 
Take care. Very nice. Thank you, Adam. I'm passing the phone back and forth. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. So what would you what would are your what are your closing statements? The closing statement is just to remind everybody that statutesandstories.com, the website, and this Hamilton exhibit will continue through the middle of next month at NSU's Cortia Gallery. And I also want to say, in addition to the wonderful art we have from David Wells Roth, which get in, gets into the details of how he paints these pictures and the research that he did, and he, I think he mentioned to you years' worth, and of course you can see some of the artwork on davidwellsroth.com, but if you go to the exhibit, you can see how he, he reconstructs the process of how he uses these colonial maps, the British maps, the war maps, to do the Boston uh, cityscapes. And so to, you can see how this escape from Boston takes place when Isaiah Thomas leaves the city. And uh, remember, we've talked about it other, other evenings, how he gets the knock on the door late at night from Dr. Joseph Warren. And he's getting a message that you have to remove from Boston forthwith because the Russians, the Russians, the, the British were coming <laughs> to arrest him. Yeah, so British he, collusion. <laughs> so uh, what's the point? The point is that in addition to his artwork, you also have these beautiful maps. And I would argue that some of the maps that are available at yep. this exhibit at NSU are, are works of art in themselves when you look at the key of the map and you look at the beautiful map. So not only can you see the law book, highly detailed maps. So when you look at the, the David's artwork, when you look at the colonial books, when you look at the, the acts of parliament, the acts of uh, the first Congress, we've also got laws dealing with uh, the Civil War. So all kinds of good historical artifacts and newspapers uh, capped off with David's colorful and beautiful artwork. So it's, it's great to see. It's totally free. And we appreciate the ability to describe it all on a WSQF radio. And David, you have some lectures coming up? So David gave his lecture yesterday, so his lecture was uh, at 2 o'clock. But okay. the lectures that are coming up, and thank you for the question, Ed, the, uh, the next lecture is on the 2nd, and that's, I think, at 7 o'clock at night. That's going to be by Professor uh, Tim, I can't remember his name off him. The uh, legal historian? Dixon, Dixon. So that's right. So Tim is a legal historian and a history teacher. So Tim Dixon is on Tuesday, and that is the 2nd, and that's, uh, I think, 7 o'clock at night till 8.30. And then the last speaker is Rand Cholet from the AHA Society. And I like to say it's the AHA Society. So that'll round out the, the, the programming, and that'll be on the 14th. And I don't want to give away too much detailed information, but we anticipate having a member of the Hamilton family on the. No, that, that's cool. That is cool. On the last day of the exhibit, which is the 14th. So Rand is coming in, and I know we already have 120 RSVPs, and they're coming in fast and furious. But that is on the 14th of next month, and that will be the last of our Hamilton programming until we do it again next year, or who knows. But here is David to sign off. But again, it's a pleasure, everybody. And uh, thank, thank you very much, Adam. Thanks again, guys. All righty. Pleasure. Stay, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yes, uh, stay, be, stay free, stay my free friend. and keep... Keep and painting realistic. I am. I, I can't do anything else. I don't right. know how to. So. All right. Thank so you. this is uh, it's now a little bit past 8 o'clock. You've okay. just heard another episode of Statues and Stories. And uh, quite frankly, uh, that, that uh, we went from Boston to Beijing. Uh, I find that really cool. So take care, my friend. Stay free until next Monday with the Concrete Conservatives 5 to 7. And then Statues and Stories from... Seven to eight. I hope you've enjoyed it. You can always uh, yeah, archive our up. audios. Are always available on wsqfradio.com. If you want to, f- to hear us live anywhere outside of South Florida, wsqfradio.com forward slash live. So take care. Stay free, my friends, and remember, there was no freaking collusion. F.
Key Biscayne, Miami Beach, and Miami. Blink Radio. Attention Patriots. 